It is very, very, very good to be with everyone today. Um, I'm going to be honest with you. Past couple of days, I've been just a little bit nervous. It's been that long. And uh, I am relying on the Lord this morning because we started and we got exactly two lessons, two messages into a series on the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And everything, as you know, came to a halt with me uh, and with my wife, and so I couldn't continue on. And this is a grand opportunity for me to once again thank my in-laws, my father-in-law, for keeping this portion of Calvary Worship Center rolling so uh, expertly to the rest of the pastoral staff. Like I said, Chip and Lily, they're going on vacation, but for their assistance in making everything run uh, here at this church, I cannot thank those people, this staff, enough. I can't do it. And those of you who are volunteer staff who also kept things running, my son, who is our current acting youth pastor for doing uh, way more than it is in his job description to help keep this church going. I uh, am just beyond grateful. Uh, Without them, things would not have gone quite as well, to say the least. So thank you all. Um, So anyway, we're going to try to do the third installment of our series on the revelation of Jesus Christ. Does that sound okay? Good, I'm glad. Well, this morning, we're going to move into Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches of Asia Minor. What is now? What is now? Now, open your Bibles. If you have a Bible you want to open to, or if you want to, you can look right over my shoulder here onto the large screen, and you will see Revelation chapter 1, verse 11 in the New International Version of the Bible. And that verse says this, write on a scroll what you see and send it. Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. That is one of those verses that can very easily be overlooked if you're not really careful. But if you look at this verse... It's important to see the specific instructions. Write on a scroll what you see and send it. The Lord is telling John the things that you're seeing. We know he's already been told earlier in the chapter to write down what he sees. but And we already determined, and I'll go over this in a minute, that the bulk of chapter 1 of the Revelation revolves around and focuses on the word see, seen, and saw. And here, in verse 11, which is important, write on a scroll what you see and send it 
what you see, send that thing to the seven. Send that to the seven, what you've seen. Now, send what you saw. Send what you saw. Do you know what we would call that in modern vernacular if we were going to put it in 20th and 21st century Christianese? It's called witnessing. John was a witness to something. He saw it. And that thing that he saw, God specifically instructed him to send that thing to the seven. To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Why specifically to the seven does he send what he saw? Why to the seven? Do you notice that the instructions are incredibly vivid and specific? He didn't say, send it to some of my churches, oh, and send it to X, Y, and Z too. No. He said, send it what you saw to the seven. Why the seven? No one else has mentioned why the seven? For decades and maybe centuries, we have focused on evangelizing the lost. And we have stuck largely to the Gospels. We've ventured off into the book of Romans and other various epistles. But the reality is, is that evangelism in its purest form, finds its home in Revelation 1 and 11. You said, but Michael, that can't be because those are the seven churches. They already know him. Yeah, you're right. But here's the thing. Why is what John saw specifically to be sent to the seven And them alone. Why? Because the seven represent the church. Those seven represent the church of Jesus Christ throughout the ages. Until this very moment in time. Now, with that said... Put a pin in that. Before we go any further in this lesson, what is now? Remember the three divisions? What is now is the second division of the Revelation. Let's briefly recap what we did, what we talked about several weeks ago, understanding the Revelation Part 1, what you have seen. There are three things that we discussed several weeks ago. Three things that we need to be aware of. Number one, the first thing that we need to be aware of is that, as I've already suggested, the bulk of chapter one is bound up in the word saw. The words seen, see, and saw are the 
keys to understanding chapter 1 of the Revelation. John saw something in chapter 1, and that something was the glorified Christ. The second thing we need to be aware of is that in verse 4 of chapter 1, the triune Godhead himself begins by greeting the seven with grace and peace, despite their spiritual condition. That should rock you to your core. In verse 4 of chapter 1, God greets the seven churches of Asia Minor with grace and peace, despite their spiritual condition. And be honest, we know that's not a good condition. This is God's intention for his church, grace and peace. Third, final, the last thing that we need to be aware of um, is that the vision of the glorified Christ that John saw lays the groundwork for literally everything else that is written in the rest of the book. Without the vision of the glorified Christ, the rest of the book is just not supportable. Because that vision establishes both the identity and the authority of the one who's speaking what was going to be written from the very beginning of the book. If John hadn't seen the glorified Christ... The seven churches may not have listened to John, and they may not have believed chapter 4 through 22. That's why verse 11 is so important. He is standing there on Patmos in the Lord's day, on the Lord's day in the Spirit, and suddenly from behind him he hears that right there. A voice like many waters, like a trumpet blasting. He says, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven. Send what you saw. When he turns around, there's the glorified Christ. He hasn't seen anything up until verse 12 of chapter 1. Send what you saw. He turns around and that's what he sees. That vision of the glorified Christ is everything that is needed to substantiate the rest of the book. All authority rests in the one that is in that vision. Who's following me? If I told you today that I'm going to write some presidential edict and I'm going to have this law passed as the president, how many of you are going to believe me? Why aren't you going to believe me? Because I'm not the president. Now, Based on who we currently have, you may want me for president. But I'm not the president. 
and you don't believe me because you have every right to doubt me. I can't do any of that. No way. Well, guess what? If John came along with Revelation chapter 2 through 22, no one would have believed him either. Because who is he to, to, to put those things out there to the seven? Who's he? Well, he's nobody. In fact, he's an incarcerated prisoner. And who is he to just up and tell anybody about the prophesied ages to come? He's nobody. But because of who he saw and ultimately who was speaking before him to the seven and the rest of time, he could write it all down. And it's believable. Yes? That's the whole point. That's chapter 1 in a nutshell. Now, let's move forward. Let's move forward with the next division of the book. The second division, Revelation chapters 2 and 3. What is now? Anybody here find it fascinating that the word that the Lord speaks to John is the word now? What is now? Not what was then. What is now? Please file that into your knower. Because what he saw in the seven applies, excuse me, what he said to the seven and the observances that the king makes applies to today. Okay? Make sure you understand it. Let's answer one question before we look into chapters 2 and 3. By the way, the meat and potatoes of 2 and 3 aren't even going to happen today. It's going to happen starting next week. With that said, I'm moving on. Question. How did the book of Revelation come to us? How in heaven's name, literally, did we get this immeasurably immense gift that lays out the plan of God, not only the plan of God for the ages, for the end of days, but also for the closing of time itself. How did we get this? Well, it's actually, the process is pretty easy. It was spelled out for us in Revelation 1 and 1. The revelation of who? Yeah, this is audience participation time. This is a Pentecostal church. We typically amen audibly. People often say things as outlandish as hallelujah and praise God. Out loud. Okay? I have actually been in a Pentecostal service before where someone got up and danced. Actually, I've been in a few hundred of those. So, when I ask a question like, who, I'm not doing my barn owl impersonation. I'm actually asking a question. This is the Re Revelation 1-1, the revelation of who? Jesus Christ, which who? 
gave him. Why? To show his servants what must soon take place. Where are we at? What must soon take place? He. See that he? Who is that he? Jesus. He. Excuse me, I got a cough. Thank you. Made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. That's how we got that book. God gave the revelation to his son. His son gives it to his angel. His angel gives it to John. Now, B.F. Flowers, author, B.F. Flowers said concerning the revelation, quote, This, now keep in mind we're talking about the book, the revelation. This is a message from God. That's what he said. This is a message from God. He gave it to his son, who gave it to an angel, who gave it to John. Now here's where it gets really important. When we go back up to our verse today, send what you saw, our text verse. John was to give it to the seven churches who were instructed to pass it along to the world. End quote. The message from God given to his son who gave it to his messenger, angel, who gave it to John. John turned around and sent what he saw to the seven who were supposed to send it out to the world. Are we getting the picture as to why those seven mean so much to us today? What was the last thing that the Lord said before His ascension? Behold, therefore, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Okay? That's beginning, the beginning of the dispensation of grace. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ initiates the dispensation of grace. How many of you are recipients of the grace of God? Okay, now, from this point forward, we need to see the revelation differently. Because we are recipients of of what he saw. So Flowers said, this is a message from God. This message from God that Flowers speaks of is what another author by the name of Lehman Strauss calls, quote, the utterances of his purpose. His purpose being grace. End quote. This message, sending what he saw to the seven, is a message of love and grace. How many of you have ever looked at the Revelation that way? At the very end of the Flowers quote, this is a message from God, that one, Flowers references 
two scriptures. The first one is Revelation 1 and 1, and the other is Mark 16 and 15. Now, we already know what Revelation 1 and 1 says because we've read it a half a dozen times already. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Now, some of you may not have much in terms of understanding about what happens in the revelation. That's okay. Even if you have a cursory understanding of what goes on from chapter 4 on, you'll know that's some really scary stuff if you don't know him. Okay? So if you take Revelation 1 and 1 and you put it in that context, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants, who are his servants? The seven, what must soon take place, and then you couple that reality with Mark 16 and 15 that Flowers refers to in his quote. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Now our expectations as the church are typically expectations that, oh, no one wanted to hear me. Tell them about Jesus. So I'm so bummed and no one's getting saved, so... I'm going to take my ball and go home because this didn't work very well. That's the wrong perspective. I'm going to tell you something, and Jesus warned us of this. If you're going to try to fill Mark 16 and 15, fulfill, understand that you, one, will be persecuted, and two, you will be rejected. Get it under your belt. Pull them up by the, by the bootstraps. Get ready. It's just that God said, get this message to my seven servants that comprise all of the church throughout the ages up until this very moment. And the last thing Jesus said to that church was, go and spread the gospel. Guys, and this is before we even get into the nuances of chapters 2 and 3. If you want to understand the difficulties in the church, not only throughout history, but right now, understand the seven. And you'll understand you. You will. If you could understand the seven, you'll understand why there was a vision of the glorified Christ. Why he said, send what you saw to my servants and they will understand what must soon take place. And we will get the understanding of why we need to go into all the world. You'll get it. 16.15 of Mark is as we commonly refer to it as the Great Commission. So what was shared with John, what John saw, 
was supposed to be shared by the seven to the world. But why is that so important? That we share what he saw with the world. Revelation chapter 4 through 22, that's why. That's it. And the eternity that is connected to the hip with it. So by looking at verses 1, 4, and 11, we can see God's true intent and desire for the revelation from the very first chapter, an unveiling of his love. You see, Aaron Wilson, a professor of mine in college, wrote a book on stewardship of all things where there was an illustration in it that I have shared here before, um, but it's been long enough ago that I don't think most of you would even remember the illustration. Jesus has ascended to heaven, and he is immediately swarmed by the occupants of heaven, so glad to see the king return. And as he makes his way to the throne, they gather around and they, they with eager anticipation, wait to hear from him. And someone says, uh, uh, what happened? And he tells them what he did and that he left the message of the gospel in the hands of twelve. And what those people were, are supposed to do with that message, go and evangelize, spread the gospel throughout the entire world. And he, he told them all about it, and they're sitting there, and someone says, but Lord, what if they don't do that? What, what if that plan fails? What, what's, what's your next plan? What's plan B? And the Lord looks and says very stoically, there is no plan B. Either the church does the job of dispersing the gospel, or the gospel doesn't get dispersed. That's the facts. And so, in his final message to the church... He gives a message of grace and peace to the seven who are supposed to take grace and peace to the world. 1 John 4 and 8 and 16 both say that God is love. Love isn't what he has. God does not possess love. Love is who he is. Love is the very character and nature of God Himself. Love is the very essence of God at His core. And so we need to view the introductory portions of the Revelation from a fresh perspective. So instead of seeing this book, the book of the Revelation, as dark and foreboding, even off-putting to some, and more than a little confusing at times. Let's dispel the confusion. We need to see this book 
the revelation of Jesus Christ as the revelation of His love through His Son, Jesus Christ. And I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking right now, but Michael, what about chapters 4 through roughly 2021? That stuff's some crazy nonsense, man. And we'll look at this later. But if you haven't even casually uh, uh, perused, I'll get it here in a minute, the Revelation recently recognized the fact that it's repeated over and over that despite what is happening, the people refuse to repent. Do you know what that tells me? They're given ample opportunity to repent. That's the grace of God. How many of you know you had an absolute collision with the grace of God when you went from lost and undone in utter outer darkness to saved and in the light? Look, Jesus said, I would that no man perish. And even in the midst of the, 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 the chapters 4 through nearly the end of the book, what is he doing? He's attempting to dispense his grace while of necessity dispensing his judgment. So, if we see the revelation of Jesus Christ as the revelation of his love through his son Jesus Christ, That, ladies and gentlemen, is of necessity a quantum leap paradigm shift. Instead of avoidance, we delve into the book. Amen? Two, mixed into all this love that I'm talking about, and no, we're not back into the mid and late 60s. It took a minute, but I appreciate those of you who laughed. Thank you. Mixed into all this love is more than a little touch of reality. His love was, re- was revealed when he reached out with grace and peace to his church. But the touch of reality is seen in that the world won't repent and accept him, as I've just intimated. That, to be honest with you, anymore in this day and age, sounds like another day at the office for the Christian If we were supposed to run and flee, there would be no such thing as a martyr. That's a whole lot easier said than done. But in the face of difficulty, if we're not not supposed to show the love of Christ and have his word on tap, If we're not supposed to still do those things in the face of difficulty, we would never have a martyr. There would be no foxes. We would have no foxes, book of martyrs, or anything. We wouldn't have have Stephen in the book of Acts or a whole bunch of others. Now, we know that John sent what he saw in chapter 1. 
to the seven because two reasons. We know what John, that John sent what he saw in chapter one, that vision, to the seven because one, he was instructed to. That's what Revelation 1 and chapter 1, 1 and 2 says he did. It says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known. That's what verse, this is what it says. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. He didn't testify. He testifies to everything. It keeps testifying. Because it's written. When you read this, it's testifying to you. Equipping you to do the same. It, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So John sent what he saw. How do we know? Know that he sent what he saw. Well, there's a really easy litmus kind of test to know within your knower, in the depths of your heart, that John sent what he saw. That is this. The rest of the book of the Revelation exists. Therefore, he sent what he saw. If he didn't send what he saw, the Revelation would be another one-chapter book. So we know that John sent what he saw to the seven because the rest of the revelation exists. He sent what he saw because John, quote, John testifies to everything he saw, end quote. And two, two, we know that he sent what he saw because Jesus identified it. Now, this is going to get a little tricky. So I want you to hang with me, and I'm going to get through this just as quickly as I can. But this is going to get a little nuanced. We know that John sent what he saw because Jesus, Jesus identified himself to each of the seven churches, except for Laodicea. But to the other six, this is what he said to the six. He said, these are the words of him who, dot, dot, dot. These are the words of him who, dot, dot, dot. Six churches out of seven, Jesus identifies himself that way. These are the words of him who. And then, once he gets done saying to the church at whatever, these are the words of him who, he, he says, or he refers to something. Now listen carefully. This is where it gets a little nuanced. He refers to something he had already been described as, or that he had been described as having in his possession in the vision that John had of him in chapter 1. With the exception of Philadelphia. The last two churches are exceptions. So six out of seven churches, he comes in addressing them as he, these are the words of him who, and then describes himself or something he has in his possession 
that John saw in chapter 1. Let me give you some examples. And by the way, we'll look at Philadelphia and Laodicea later. Those exceptions are not important for right now. Let me give you three examples. Example number one. Chapter 1, John describes Jesus as being among the seven golden lampstands and holding seven stars in his right hand. Okay? Everybody get that? So Jesus is among the seven golden lampstands, and he's holding seven stars in his right hand. That's the description that John gives him in part in chapter 1. In chapter 2, verse 1, the Bible says this. This is Jesus speaking. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Well, isn't that what John just said? Isn't that what John just saw? Yes. Let's go, let's go to my second example. Now, Jesus describes himself in chapter 1 as the first and the last, and having been dead, but now is alive. Jesus described himself that way to John in chapter 1. Chapter 2, verse 8 says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Well, that's what John saw. And Jesus is repeating it. John also describes, we're back in John, looking and seeing and describing, Jesus in chapter 1 is having a sharp, double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Meaning the effect of the word of God as he speaks it. Chapter 2 and verse 12 says this, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Six out of seven times, this is the kind of thing that's going on. So we know for a fact that John sent what he saw to the seven because what he saw in chapter 1, Jesus refers to in chapters 2 and 3. Is that important? Is that important? I mean, let's be honest with you. This may all sound really unimportant, like kind of cereal filler in your hot dogs and bologna. Kind of unimportant detail, minutia stuff that doesn't need to be even discussed, much less take up time on a Sunday morning service. But in reality, these things are all very important As I mentioned in our last lesson some weeks ago, the vision that John had of Christ in chapter 1 is vital to the existence of the rest of the book. Having told the seven churches in advance who it was that was saying that these things were going to happen, meaning... John saying that Jesus said these things gave John's testimony credibility. 
it gave John's testimony validity. It gave John's testimony weight because he wasn't saying them. He was telling what he saw and what he heard him say. We shift off of John and on to Jesus. It wasn't John. It was the risen, glorified, all-powerful God who said those things. Therefore, it could be believed. In fact, it could be banked on as absolute fact. This is the case. These things will come to pass. Because John didn't say them. Jesus did. Everything from chapters 2 through 22 depends on who said these things and by what authority they said them. Everything does. Two, remember that some of the things that John testified about, the things that Christ said to and concerning the seven. How many of you have read chapters 2 and 3 of the Revelation and went, How many of you ever done that? You can't read chapters 2 and 3 of the Revelation and just walk away unchanged. You can't. Because he's talking, remember chapter 1, he says, Tell this to my servants, the seven, send what you saw to my servants. You read chapters 2 and 3 of the Revelation and you remain unchanged, you, number one, discern roughly as well as a fence post. The fence post may be better. And two, you do not see the application of the seven to us now and to you personally. It is vital that we grasp the layout of this book. Everything from chapters 2 through 22 depends on who said these things and by what authority they said them. Now, I've already started this. I'm going to restart it. Remember that some of the things that John testified about, the things that Christ said to the seven concerning them, had to be backed up by the fact that John wasn't saying those things in and of himself just to be critical. You ever sat under a critical preacher and went, say, what? You don't know me. And who are you if you do? He wasn't being critical. He had very little, very, John had very little to do with saying any of that stuff. The only thing that John had to do with in terms of chapters 2 and 3 and the messages being sent to the seven, the only thing that John had anything to do with any of that was he was testifying to what he saw. He didn't say that. Any of it, he merely sent what he saw. Rather, Jesus was saying to them, to the seven, out of his love 
and out of his grace, he was saying the contents of chapters 2 and 3. What? How many of you have ever been confronted by the Holy Spirit because of something you've said, something you've thought, something you've done, something you believe, something you hold dear, something you hold as a tradition? How many of you have ever had a collision with the Spirit of God to correct and, 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 uh, bring you along? How many of you? Everybody better raise your hands. If that, you just, if you don't, you're lost. We'll get you saved up here in a minute. Because you have had a confrontation with the Spirit of God or you're dead spiritually. And if you're dead spiritually, you may have actually had a confrontation with Him anyway in an attempt to draw you to the cross and eternal salvation through Jesus Christ. Jesus was saying what he said in chapters 2 and 3 out of his love and out of the grace that he has for them. And if that was the case, if that's the case, that 2 and 3, chapters 2 and 3 are really the grace and peace of chapter 1 and verse 4 to the seven churches, if 2 and 3 is the manifestation of that grace and peace... And the seven is ultimately responsible for fulfilling the Great Commission, then those hard to hear words of the glorified Christ had to be backed up with John's vision in order to be believed and then subsequently implemented by the seven. And by us. You see, when Jesus identified himself as the one who says this, I'm the one who was dead and now alive. I'm the one with the sword coming out of my mouth. I'm the one who was buried. Now, all those things that I already talked about. John sent all that to the seven. And then Jesus turns around and identifies himself as those things or possessing those things. And then he addresses each church on their specific level with their specific needs in an attempt to implement that grace and peace of chapter 1 verse 4 so that they would respond in affirmation to the changes that the Christ wants them to change. Laodicea is the biggie, right? That's the one we all remember. But Every one of them had some sense of need. And he approached them with the grace and peace of the one that John saw. Look, if I am going to get grace and peace, I want it from the one that John saw. That's why it works. When he saw this before Jesus addresses the seven. Because the one who John saw is the one addressing the seven. And the grace and the peace of chapter 1 verse 4 is being implemented in the words that Christ spoke to each church. And he says, if you've got ears to hear the Spirit, hear Him. That's Christ's methodology of getting the church to the place where they need to be out 
of the places they have found themselves in and in to the place he wants them in so that when he gave the revelation to his son and his son gave it to the angel and the angel gave it to John and John gave it to the seven, they would see themselves through the eyes of Jesus in chapters 2 and 3 and then turn around and be equipped and able to fulfill Mark sixteen fifteen, the Great Commission. Who here gets it? All right, the rest of you, there will be a test afterwards. We're going to get into the seven churches starting next week. The lessons on the seven that you taught, are they still available? Or did everybody get copies that who wants them? We still, we, there's, okay. Prior to this series, Gary was teaching the series on the seven churches of Asia Minor down the hallway on Wednesday nights. Those lessons are still available um, to grab. All you have to do is sign up for them, and we'll get them to you. I'm going to take a different tack starting next week. Stand with me this morning. I have to admit to you that it feels really good to be here today. It feels really good to be here today. It's good to see your faces. We have a lot of faces that are missing. We've got people out on vacation. We've got people out seeing family. We've got out all over the place. We've got that meeting happening at Baylor today. But those of you who are here heard the word of the Lord. Can you all do me a favor? Take time, if not today, sometime through the week, to ponder this. Because you've probably never perceived the revelation as having direct influence on your life, except for the entire rapture of the church coming back on horses with him thing okay that's probably about it maybe not but maybe I'm going to take a a lead I'm going to take the lead from John today in the previous two lessons I have sent what I saw Okay. Don't allow this to escape you. Don't allow this to slip through the the morass that is your mind and the things that you have to get done today, tomorrow, throughout the week. Work. Work hard at simplifying your mind. You need to know the Word of God. Okay? Starting next week, it's going to get really, really, really specific. 
in terms of why Jesus came to them in grace and peace. He comes to the church in grace and peace despite the spiritual condition of the church out of his immense, immeasurable love. But that love does not stop him from speaking the truth into the church. And what does the Bible tell us about speaking the truth? Do it in love. Speak the truth in love. Jesus, we love you. We exalt you and we we glorify your name in all the earth because you are God and we are not. Father, the more I experience your spirit in reading your word and you disclosing what the throne longs for in his church, the smaller I feel. Lord, I just ask in Jesus' name, the name that gives the child of God access to the throne of Almighty God. Father, I ask that you would help this word, these words, the idea of your word to permeate our thoughts, to haunt us in its love and its peace and its grace and its expansiveness. Father, let us never assume we know what we're talking about. That we have exhausted the meaning of your word. The depth, the height, the length, and the width of your word. Help us to never assume that we know it. Let it keep us coming back and coming back and coming back again. Father, we ask today, Lord God, that you would be with us, be with those families, Lord God, that are traveling, be with those, those families that have decisions to make. Do, do Let your peace and your love and your grace comfort those who are in pain. And Father, I pray that you would help us to be lights in the world. Not just another religious spot on a page, but luminescent in a dark place. Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.